Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we can be here this evening. We're especially thankful, too, because we continue to hear encouraging news about uh, Jim Speedy's condition. We continue to pray for him and for his response to the uh, medication, for his response to the doctors, for uh, just his wonderful testimony that he has. And, and Father, continue to pray for uh, Linda as well as for Mark, his son, and just uh, strengthen them at this time. Father, there are also many other folks on our prayer list that we... Uh, Remember in prayer on a regular basis who are facing uh, cancer, facing other um, challenging diseases, and we just uh, pray for them as well. Remember them. And we pray for the missionaries we support, especially Jim Myers and some of the challenges they're facing right now, many other pastors who are faithfully teaching your word, some facing different different challenges. Continue to pray for Chafer Seminary. And, Father, we just lift all of these people up to you. Father, it is your word that is to be at the center of our life. It's to be at our, inform all aspect of our thinking, and it is your word that uh, helps us to understand who we are as human beings and our purpose and destiny, that we may live a, a uh, truly uh, fulfilled life in terms of fulfilling your purpose and destiny for our lives. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, we know that that some of these things are, are difficult, are challenging for some, and we pray that we might be able to uh, carefully think through the issues as they apply to our own thinking and our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 4. Or Acts chapter, uh, yes, Acts chapter 4. Now in Acts chapter 4, as we have studied, this is the reaction that has set in from the uh, by, from the govern, Jewish governing authorities in uh, Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter four. Let's just pick up the contents context rather at uh, Acts four sixteen. Okay, the Sanhedrin has now deciding how they're going to handle the fact that. This known sign, remember last time I pointed out that in um, verse, where was it, um, that, that verse 16, 
that they have stated that there is a known, it's translated notable miracle, it should be translated a known sign. They recognize that everybody in Jerusalem is fully aware of what has happened and the legitimacy of this miracle and that it is a sign. It signifies something in relation to God's plan. That's the difference between uh, a sign and a miracle. Uh, they're roughly synonymous, but a sign, using that word to describe a miracle, is bringing out or emphasizing the fact that it is pointing to something. It is signifying something, and therefore it is uh, related to Old Testament prophecy. And so they understand that. I pointed out last time in looking at this in terms of evidence that what we see is the unbelieving mind uh, looks at the data the same way the believing the believer looks at the data. It's just that they are going to redefine it in terms of their presuppositions uh, if they are not positive to the word. They're not set in their presuppositions don't set their their decision in stone. They can still choose, they can still be humble and choose to recognize the validity and strength of evidence. This is how people uh, are converted to Christianity as they uh, humble themselves and they become objective and they say, okay, if there's a truth claim here, then let me look at the basis for that uh, for that truth claim. But that's not the role of the Sanhedrin here. What they've already made up their mind. They don't want to be confused with facts. So in order to prevent, and, and also marked up here is they've lost faith. And if this continues, they're really going to lose faith. And at the end of this episode, what we're going to discover is that one of the wisest rabbis of all time, Gamaliel, under whom uh, Saul of Tarsus is studied, said, uh, don't do anything harsh to these men because if there, there have been a lot of, of so-called Messiah claims recently and nothing's come of them. If this is of man, nothing will come of this. Don't quit making a big deal about it. But if it is of God, then you can't do anything to stop it. And that was uh, great, great words of wisdom uh, by Gamaliel. And what's happened here is they're more concerned about saving faith than they are about seeking the truth. So they want to do something, and they're going to threaten Peter and John so that they will no longer proclaim the gospel and no longer teach. So their motivation is stated in verse 17, uh, <clears throat> But so that it no, it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely, uh, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So in verse eighteen, they so they called them, that is Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, how would you respond to that if you're called in before a court and you are told uh, that you are no longer to uh, do any teaching in the name of Jesus, don't tell anybody else about Jesus, that you are prohibited from ever uh, talking about your beliefs in the Bible uh, by, a, by a judge? How are you going to respond to that? Well, we see their response in verse 19. But Peter and John answered, and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So uh, when they had further threatened them, 
They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what they had done. Now, if they hadn't had, notice the masses are now on the side of Peter and John. Just a few weeks before, they, the masses were calling for Jesus to be crucified. Never trust in the in popular opinion; it can be swayed very, uh, very easily from one day to the next. So the issue here, though, that is raised is an issue that is uh, becoming a more and more significant issue in our culture, especially in the United States, but to some degree in other countries of, uh, in Western civilization because of a number of shifts that have taken place. And this is the question of obedience to government authority. Does the believer have the right to disobey government authority at any point? And if so, what are the parameters for uh, determining when it is right for the individual believer to disobey a legitimate governing authority? And this applies not simply to government, uh, civil government, but it also applies to any authority established by God. And so it has a broad range of applications. And to begin with, I want to cover about three points of basic introduction. About three points of basic introduction. First of all, we must recognize that human government is a divine institution. Human government is a divine institution. There are, in the way I explain the divine institutions, there are five divine institutions. A divine institution is not something that is has been developed uh, by hu- by human beings for their own benefit. It is uh, different from a tradition. You may have a tradition of of uh, going to uh, dinner with friends after church on Sunday morning. You may have a tradition of Sunday afternoon football. Uh, there are many areas in this country where Sunday afternoon is limited to watching football on television, and there are friends that are invited over, and or they go to a game and they tailgate and all of these other things, and that is a human tradition. But a divine institution is is not does not originate from man, but has been designed by God and established by God for the benefit of the human race. And a divine institution applies to every human being, whether they are uh, uh, American or uh, German or Chinese or Russian or whatever their ethnicity may be and whatever their religious beliefs may be because it it is not limited only to Christians. Divine institutions are for the... uh, stability and protection and preservation of the human race. The first three divine institutions were established by God prior to the original sin, prior to Adam's sin. And those first three divine institutions are are individual responsibility. Sometimes it's discussed in terms of volition, That's certainly part of it because that's a basis for responsibility. But ultimately, it is responsibility and accountability to God because in each divine institution, there there are authorities established. 
So in the first divine institution, the authority is God, and we are, every individual is accountable to God for the choices and the decisions that they make. The second divine institution is marriage. Marriage is between a, one man and one woman. Uh, marriage isn't something that is, was generated because it seemed like a good thing to do. But marriage was established by God from the very beginning. He first created Adam, and then he created uh, the woman from his side, and that she was designed to be his helper, to be his assistant. So together they worked toward a common goal, and that goal was to fulfill the mission that God gave them. The third divine institution is family. As part of their the mandate given by God to Adam and Eve prior to the fall, they were mandated to uh, multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. Now, those first two verbs, to multiply and fill the earth, were very, very important. And this I- indicates the presence of family. And that in the uh, this initial era from the fall or from the creation of Adam and Eve, rather, until the uh, Noahic flood, the core authority framework in society was the, was the family. And the ultimate highest human authority that we can discern was the uh, head of the family, the, or later maybe the head of the clan or the head of the tribe, the patriarch. There is no uh, sense of a delegation of, of authority in terms of human government until we get to the uh, Abra- I mean, until we get to the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter nine. So we're going to go to Genesis nine and just briefly look at the Noahic covenant. When Noah and his sons got off the ark, and uh, eventually we all trace our roots back to boat people. Everybody goes back to the ark. They got off the ark, and it's a new world. Physically, it looks very different. Uh, uh, Meteorologically, it's functioning very differently. Uh, It's just come out from under a year of being submerged in water. So everything looks different, and it's a new beginning. They're starting all over, just like Adam and Eve did after the fall. They are now in that same position, except instead of two, there are, uh, there are eight. And so God is going to reaffirm to them the same basic covenant that he affirmed to Adam at the very beginning before the fall. It was modified slightly because of sin in Genesis chapter 3, and now because of this further judgment in the Noahic flood, it will be modified again. But the same basic elements are there, and that is that man is to multiply and to fill the earth, and uh, a couple of other things are added in uh, this covenant. So the first thing that God says is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That connects it back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then God says, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. Now, this is the first mention of a relationship based on fear or terror between the human race and the animals. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said that he was going to create man in his image and likeness. Male and female, he would create them, 
and they were to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field. There's no sense of terror in, in the animal kingdom toward man. It is a, uh, a, a relationship where there is peace and harmony, but now that relationship between the human race and animals changes, and there's this new element of terror. In addition, in verse 3, there's a modifica- dietary modification. In Genesis chapter 1, God gave the uh, grass of the fields, the herb of the fields, the fruit of the trees for food. And man was not to eat meat there because there was no death to eat meat. You have to kill something, but there's no death in the garden. But now God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Notice, you don't have dietary restrictions here like you do later in the, uh, in the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant. Everything. So they, at this point, that means everything. They could eat lizards. They could eat um, uh, lobster. They could eat shrimp. They could eat uh, pork, whatever. They could eat anything. No dietary restriction. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herb. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. So that was the only restriction. You can't eat something that's still living, eating it uh, raw. Now, that's a difference between raw and rare. It's an important difference. Some of you don't understand that, but that's another issue. And then in verse 5, God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. Now, see, notice the connection between verse 4 and verse 5. Is, the, is, is this issue of blood, because blood is evidence of life. The shedding of blood is the opposite. It is the uh, taking of life. So verse 5 flows out of the mention of blood in verse 4. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it. So if an animal kills a human being, that animal, and we still practice this for the most part, that animal is put to death. Of course, the animal rights activists don't like that because they, operating on a Darwinistic framework, there's no difference between you and a grizzly bear or a worm or an amoeba. They all need to be treated the same. But God makes this distinction because man is in in the image and likeness of God. That's what separates him from all of the animals. Man is not an animal. He is a creature in the image and likeness of God. So uh, God says to Noah, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I require and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So the point here is that there is now going to be a delegation of authority to supervise the decision-making that, is, that, that develops when somebody has taken the life of somebody else, that there needs to be a system in place to evaluate the evidence and determine if it was justified or not. And if it is not justified, then there needs to be the determination and assignment of a penalty. And that penalty is stated in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And this is to uh, reinforce the principle that uh, because the human being is created in the image and likeness of God, 
taking that life is so egregious that it demands the forfeiture of the life of the one who commits the crime. That's the explanation. Notice God doesn't say that the reason for this is because it's going to prevent others from doing it. He doesn't say that the reason for doing this is because it's going to be a lot cheaper than keeping them alive in prison for the next 70 years. And you hear lots of different arguments, pro and con, for uh, capital punishment, but God is very simple. The reason for capital punishment is that this is a person, an individual who is in the image of God, and because they're in the image of God, they should not be touched. No human being has the right to take that life. Now, this is murder. This is not talking about taking life in self-defense or taking life in uh, in warfare or taking life of uh, somebody who is in the midst of criminal activity or even taking the life of someone who has committed murder. Uh, God would be quite... Uh, uh, quite contradictory if he was saying any time you take the life of another person, then it demands that your life be taken. That would be self-contradictory. So he's clearly distinguishing certain cases where the taking of human life is legitimate and other times when it is not legitimate. So one case when it is legitimate is in capital punishment. So somebody is being given the responsibility to adjudicate the issue and and set the penalty. And again, it closes in verse 7 with the uh, mandate, as for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Now, this covenant is what establishes the basis for government because now God is delegating to man Uh, judicial responsibility, which was not there before. Man is going to govern over his own affairs, and when there is criminal activity, as represented by one of the most egregious crimes, if not the most egregious crimes, and that is murder, then if man is given the authority to adjudicate in the greatest of crimes, then he would also have the authority to adjudicate in lesser, uh, lesser crimes. So this establishes the fourth divine institution, which is human government. Now, the fifth divine institution doesn't come into uh, effect, into place, until uh, until uh, two chapters later in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 11, when you have the Tower of Babel and the disobedience of the human race of the Tower of Babel, at that point, God uh, uh, separated the human race by... Uh, by confusing the languages and establishing all these different languages. At that point, you have the basis for national distinctions and, and national, uh, national entities. So nations don't come into effect for approximately 200 years. You had government and government authority prior to the establishment of nations, and once the nations are established, then you have the development of, um, of national entities and national governments. Now, once this authority was established and delegated to man, uh, it wasn't long before man began to pervert that authority. This is exactly what happened at Babel. You have Nimrod, who's called a great hunter before God, which is an idiom meaning that actually that he was uh, operating independent from God, and he's hostile to God, and he is the one who initiates the building of the Tower of Babel and establishing the civilization there uh, in Babel. 
And so there is a perversion of government. But government is perverted because those who are in the positions of authority are fallen human beings who have sin natures, and they will fail, and sometimes they will fail in government positions egregiously and pervert government. But government in and of itself is not evil. Now, that's an important point because you will read from some political theorists, usually of the libertarian persuasion, that government's evil, and government is not evil. It's not volition isn't evil. Personal responsibility isn't evil. Marriage isn't evil. Just because people uh, mess it up doesn't mean it's bad. Uh, Family isn't evil, and just because people screw up families doesn't mean families are evil. Uh, I think some families are evil, but family as a divine institution isn't evil. Human government as an institution isn't evil. It is uh, neutral, but it is going to be carried out by sinners. And what's interesting is the last two divine institutions are established by are established after sin, and they are designed to contain and restrict the sinful propensities of the human race. Now, as uh, things developed after the uh, Tower of Babel and you had the development of different nations, what you saw see in these nations as they reject God is that once God is no longer the ultimate source of authority, then they are re- going to replace God with something else. If there is no God who's the source of meaning and purpose and destiny, if there's no God who is the ultimate source of right and wrong, uh, moral absolutes, if there's no God who is the source of what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our, our rights are endowed by God, not by the state. If there is no God, then who gives us our rights? The state. The state moves into that vacuum. And in the ancient world, this was seen uh, in many different instances. For example, in Egypt, the Pharaoh became God. He is the personification of of God. He is God himself. Whereas in most of your Mesopotamian empires, Assyrian Empire, Babylonian Empire, the king is simply a son of the God or an incarnation of of the God, but he isn't fully God like the Pharaoh. There's a difference in how they saw the relation of deity to these uh, governing powers. Then you had later on in the development of the Roman Empire where the uh, Roman emperors wanted to be uh, deified and wanted to be worshipped. In fact, Philo, who was a uh, Jewish writer during the first century, tells of a meeting of Alexandrian Jews. These are Jews who lived in the uh, northern uh, city of Alexandria in Egypt who went to uh, Rome and had a hearing with uh, uh, Gaius, the emperor, and the Jews were charged with failing to give uh, thanksgiving offerings for the emperor's recovery during an illness early in his reign. This, this is Caligula, who was quite crazy a little, little later on. Uh, and they swore when they came to him that they were not guilty of this charge, that they had given sacrifices twice a day, every day, for, for years for the, for the health of the, of the uh, emperor. And he replied to them that that was really of no use to him because they offered sacrifices for him and they should be offering sacrifices to him because he was the God. So... 
you see that, that this idea of the state becoming the ultimate authority and the ultimate determiner of right and wrong has its origins going all the way back to the uh, breakup of the nations at the Tower of Babel from the very from the very beginning. In modern times, you have, for example, uh, uh, Friedrich Georg Hegel, who was a early 19, an early 19th century philosopher, uh, said that the state was God walking on the earth. So in his view, the state is absolute, and he was, was extremely influential in the thinking of, uh, of Karl Marx and the development of uh, Marx's political philosophy. So what we learn from this is that while governments, some governments and some people in government are evil, government itself was instituted and established by God, and God is the source of that authority. And from what Scripture says is that because it is a divine institution, it is designed for the uh, protection, the preservation, the stability of the human race, but it often becomes perverted by sinful people. So since we live in the devil's world, and since we ourselves are sinners, how are we to relate to authority in government or any other authority that um, that is also dominated by sinful people and those where those sinful people pervert the institution itself? That's the first area of orientation to this question. The second is the, the underlying issue. What is the underlying issue in obedience to government? What's the underlying issue, and why is this important? Think about the Scriptures. You think all the way through the Scriptures, and you recognize that again and again and again, from Genesis and the Pentateuch all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament in the Gospels and the Epistles, there's this emphasis on obedience to authority, obedience to authority. Again and again, there's there, there, this emphasis that... There, that we shall, we cannot for almost any reason violate authority. We think of all of the horrible evil things that King Saul was doing, uh, especially as he was trying to uh, assassinate David. Uh, and yet when, when David uh, was trapped in a cave with Saul, Saul didn't know he was there, and David's trapped in there, and Saul goes in there to relieve himself. David is so close to Saul that he can reach out with his knife, he can just slice off a little bit of the hem of his garment, and just as evidence that he could have taken Saul's life. David was so convicted with the error of that, that that in and of itself was such an egregious violation of respect for the authority of the kingship that, that he, well, he had to confess that. He was, uh, he, he, that. For him, that was as wrong as if he had gone ahead and taken Saul's life. Now, that is a high view of respect for the office of the king. David said, I cannot lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. And even though the, the person who was put in that position by, by God was a complete failure, was disobedient to God, was causing the death of numerous people. He had called for the execution of almost, of, of almost all the priests at Nob. Only a, a couple escaped. Uh, he was pursuing David and on numerous occasions uh, was, try, was trying to have him killed, put a price on his head. And at one point, he even threw his spear at David to try to kill him himself. 
And yet David did not believe that he was justified in violating the authority that God set over him. In the New Testament, you also find numerous authority statements related to different spheres of life. Now, we have to answer the question, why is it that authority is so so stressed in Scripture? And the reason for this is very simple. The original sin of the universe was violation of authority. The original sin of the universe is Satan rejecting the authority of God. Satan wanted to be like God. Satan's disobedience to God is he is saying, I'm the one who's going to determine what's right and wrong, not you. And it is that revolt against divine authority that set everything else in motion in terms of the angelic conflict, the creation of man and the human race, and sin within human history. And so God stresses this because to violate authority in a wrong way is to follow in Satan's sin. It is based in arrogance and not in, uh, not in humility. Now, the third point I want to emphasize is that there are different spheres of authority mentioned in Scripture. Uh, it's not a strict hierarchy, although in some areas there, it is hierarchical. There are certain authorities over, over other, other authorities. The ultimate authority in the universe is God. In fact, God is the one, Scripture says, who establishes all other authorities. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. So this stresses God as the sovereign ruler of his creation, that he allows sin for a time. He allows the human race to go through this period where we can uh, disobey and we can rebel, and yet God still rules in the affairs of men and still brings discipline and judgment even within human history. Another verse is Psalm 103.19, that the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 47.8 says that God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. So the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures clearly affirm divine authority, that God is the one who is the ultimate and final authority in the universe. Uh, another sphere of authority that exists is the is the family that is uh, taught in Scripture. In Ephesians 5.22, we're told that wives are to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, that is, uh, and then in Ephesians 6.1, children are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Both of these are simply reiterations of Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture principles. There's also an authority structure within the church. Within the church, we're told, for example, Ephesians 5.23 uses the analogy with the church and says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. So Christ is the head of the church. But there are other authorities under Christ. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well. Notice that. The elders who rule well, they are exercising authority of ruling over the congregation. And the statement is that the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. 
especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So this relates to pastoral authority in the local church. Uh, Hebrews 13:17, the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. So we have a authority that's given to nations. We have authority given to uh, fathers and husbands. We have authority given to uh, pastors and leaders of a local church. There's also an authority structure within the realm of of employment. This is anal- this is based on the analogy with uh, scripture. It was uh, slave and master. Colossians three twenty two states, bond servants obey in all things your master. Now, what does that mean? All things. That's really what we're getting at. How, does that all things mean everything, no matter what, or does it mean something else? Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. Don't just go through the motions, but as men pleasers, do it to to really truly please your your master or in our in culture uh, uh, your your employer. In sincerity of heart, fearing God, He's the ultimate authority over your your master over the government. Ultimately, you're serving God. Scripture also teaches. Uh, other spheres of authority, the authority of the pedagogue in, in Galatians is assumed. That would be uh, analogous to the authority of a school teacher today, the authority of the coach, the authority of the trainer, the authority of the master in the uh, gymnasium, the authority of the coach in sports. These are other fields of authority, the authority of commanding officers in the military. So you have all these different spheres of authority. In fact, there is no area of life that we can engage in where there is not an authority. One of the greatest ways to determine that you will destroy your ability to enjoy life is to uh, be arrogant toward authority and not learn to submit to authority. I've watched this over the years with many uh, adolescents who uh, have never been taught respect for authority by the parents, and by the time they get into middle school, if they haven't learned this, I think, just just my opinion, no scientific basis, I think that there's a geometrical uh, progression in the intensity of the difficulty of learning authority orientation with each year that goes by after you're about 10 so that when you wake up at 30 and decide you need to learn something about authority, it's about a million times hard, harder to learn it than when you were 10. And so this, this is a guarantee of, of a, a guarantee of failure. But all, with all of these authorities that are established by God, God also limits every authority. No human authority has unlimited authority. No no human authority has an unlimited ability to dictate to others. Uh, fathers, parents, Ephesians 6, 4, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. There are restrictions placed upon their authority. Uh, the husband's authority is limited. In 1 Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of God. That's 1 Peter 3, 7. Limitations on the husband's authority. He can't, a husband just can't tell his wife whatever to do and she needs to do it. And the whole act of submission is related, especially in Ephesians 5, 
to respect for the husband. That is, uh, at the core meaning, in fact, Paul restates it as respect, that wives are to respect their husbands at the end of that, that paragraph. Pastoral authority or authority in the church is also limited. Pastors can't tell you where to go eat lunch, how much money to give. They can't tell you where to live, who to marry, uh, what to do with your children, where to send your children to school, or, or things like that. A, a pastor has limited authority. Passages such as Second uh, Corinthians one twenty four, uh, where Paul talks about even ap- ap- apostolic authority. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you're standing firm. See, it's not to be done by lording it over uh, somebody else. That's not how uh, leadership was, uh, or authority was to be handled. In Matthew 20, 25 to 28, Jesus talks about the difference between the way he is teaching authority and the way the non-Christian world views authority. In Matthew twenty twenty-five, he says, Jesus called them to himself and asked, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. They're abusive, is, is the idea there. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, the Son of Man is the one, according to Daniel 7, who is going to come and rule over the nations with a rod of iron. But he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So the style of leadership in the church is to be different from what is seen as abusive authority out, outside of the church or outside in the world. First uh, Peter 5, uh, verses 2 and 3, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as uh, overseers, and by, not by compulsion, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So here's a conclusion. Authority in every human realm is established by God and delegated by God. Second observation is that there is a hierarchy of authority. There are greater authorities and lesser authorities. Third observation is that all human authority is limited. All human authority is limited. Fourth observation, all humans in authority are sinners and will be unjust at times in their decisions. So the question is, when and under what conditions does a believer have the right to disobey a legitimate authority? Now today we live in a world... We live in a world where there are increasing tensions between Christians and non-Christians in our culture. And the, this, this tension has been there for centuries in any, in any culture, but they have been exacerbated in our culture over the last 30 or 40 years. And, this, and I just want to give you a couple of examples of this. Then there are many more that we could go to, but I, don't, I just want to establish this because these are things that are going to impact every one of us at some point or another. The first is in the realm of hate speech and homosexuality. There's legislation on the books 
related to hate speech that can be used uh, against pastors. Now, in the United States, this hasn't gone as far as it has in other nations. In Canada, in Britain, and in Sweden, there have been pastors who have been arrested simply because they have taught uh, what the Christianity has always taught, that homosexuality is a sin. When I was in Canada two or three years ago, uh, just prior to the time that I came up there, there was a uh, youth pastor at a local church that was teaching through the Scriptures, and he was teaching, uh, and he taught that what the Scriptures teaching, that homosexuality along with murder and robbery and lying and covetousness and all these other things was a sin. He wasn't making a specific issue out of it. He was not grinding an axe. He was simply teaching basic basic truth from the Scripture, and he was arrested for violating the hate speech law in Canada. So a question is going to come up for Christians at some point. Are you going to avoid saying what the Scripture teaches because the government has threatened you with prison because they're, they're defining that as hate speech? Another example the realm of personal religious beliefs and mandates from the state. A couple of examples of this. Uh, just recently, also a, an issue related to homosexuality, the, uh, New York passed a law uh, validating same-sex marriage. And, uh, and as a result of that, same-sex marriage was going to become legal as of this past uh, July 24th. Now, with this new defini- definition of marriage... That came into effect. It would it cause it will cause and has caused personal conflicts for certain clerks, county clerks in and city clerks in in New York, because if their belief is that it is wrong, morally wrong for same sex marriage, should they be forced to give uh, marriage certificates for same sex marriage? And this has become, uh, this has already entered into uh, uh, courts and has, issues have been challenged uh, in the court as to whether or not they uh, can continue their job in, without violating uh, their religious beliefs. Uh, after the law passed, the uh, governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, signed the, the bill and he admonished the clerks in New, in New York State, says, you don't get to say, I like this law and I'll enforce this law or I don't like this law and I won't enforce this law. You can't do that. So if you can't enforce the law, then you shouldn't be in that position. Uh, Nassau County District Attorney Kathleen Rice um, made a similar statement. She declared that, quote, the law affords no discretion to public officials charged with granting marriage licenses. Therefore, any such refusal may be subject to criminal prosecution. Uh, even though New York's Marriage Equality Act contains extremely narrow religious exemptions, it's devoid, unfortunately, of any individual conscience, conscious, conscience protections. However, New York also has a human rights law, which requires employers to accommodate those religious beliefs of its employees unless it places an undue hardship on the employer. So the issue here is that the individual, if you're a Christian, you've got to decide, are you going to stand up for what you believe in or are you going to succumb to the pressure of the state? But there are ways around this, and the suggestion that is uh, put out by the uh, uh, 
Alliance Defense Fund, which is which is excellent guidance, is if you're a clerk, just delegate it to someone who can do it. Don't put yourself in that position where you have to personally violate that. Uh, you have other types of cases like that that are coming up, but, but Christians have to understand that that they're going to be put by by legislation in these kinds of positions. So we have to decide how and what does the Scripture teach. And so we, I'll just get to an introduction of this tonight. The first place we're going to go is Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Now in Romans chapter 13, we have our foundational passage in the New Testament on government authority. Foundational passage here on, on a government authority. Now, the first verse reads, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, when we get into this passage, one of the things that you should recognize is that there are basically three views that are out there in the Christian community as to how this passage relates to the individual Christian. The first view is uh, that the government has an unlimited authority and this demands unrestricted submission. That the government tells you whatever the government tells you to do, you need to do it because this is the government. Now, unfortunately, many of the people who are on various uh, websites, uh, some of them are uh, constitutionalist websites and others, take the third position, and they try to act like the people who take the second position are really in the first position. That's that's a logical fallacy. It's called a straw man argument, constantly misrepresenting uh, what the options are. It's also uh, called the logical fallacy of the excluded middle where you're leaving out other options. The second option, which is the historically traditional way of understanding Romans 13, is that the authority of government is limited and that believers are responsible to submit to all areas of government, uh, government legislation except that which directly contradicts God's specific revelation. The third view is also holds to a limited authority, that government has limited authority. We've already seen that all authority in Scripture is limited, so it, these are the two. Uh, are, these two are correct in terms of understanding limited authority. But their view is that the believer or the Christian is not required to to submit to a tyrannical or unjust law. Now, the question is, who's determining whether it's a tyrannical or unjust law? Who's making that decision? And an example that, that you often hear, or that I often hear, is, is an example of what if the government passes legislation uh, that requires you to, for example, give up your, your uh, ownership of firearms. Now, that immediately gets everybody's attention, and um, and they say that, well, that's a violation of the Constitution. But if it's done legally, where the Constitution is changed under the pr- provisions in the Constitution for changing it, then that's a different case. That's not, uh, that's not an arbitrary use of power. That's done through all of the 
uh, legally established uh, ways of doing it. Court cases, everything else, and this is passed. So what are you going to do then? Well, now you're not any different from a citizen in Ukraine or a citizen in, in Britain or a citizen in, in Australia. Is that Does that justify disobedience on the part of a believer? And we'll get to that. We'll see the answer to that as we go through, through the question. But who is it then that s- determines if it's an unjust law or, or the government's become tyrannical? If you put yourself as an individual in that place, you're just like Satan. You are making yourself the ultimate authority. And that's really important to understand that. The example that is that you have to deal with is that example of David thinking it was even wrong and disrespectful for him to cut the hem of the garment that Saul wore when they were in the cave, and Saul's out to kill him. That is foundational. So, Romans 13. Now, what is going on in Romans chapter 13? Well, to understand Romans 13 a little bit, we're going to go back and just get the context in Romans chapter 12. And this is where we'll just wrap up... uh, this evening just to get this context. Romans 12 and following is talking about a series of very uh, practical uh, uh, examples of obedience in the life of the believers in Rome, in the capital of the Roman Empire. And Paul starts with verses 1 and 2 where he gives the overriding command that governs everything in the next few chapters. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, and that is not cosmos there, it's ionos, it's the spirit of the age. Do not be conformed to the spirit of the age or the thinking of the culture around you, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is uh, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what the way Paul starts this section is by saying that the correct attitude uh, of the believer is to recognize that his life is a life in service to God and that that begins by not thinking like the world thinks. He is going to think differently about the world so that the believer is going to um, have a different attitude about life, about government, about authority than the rest of the the non-Christian world. That means at the very least, his attitude in thinking about government will be different from the spirit of the age. Then we go on down in the chapter, down to about verse 17, and Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. This is getting down to the personal level. If somebody has done evil to you, it is not your personal responsibility to take that in hand and seek your personal vengeance against that individual. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Our focus is on that which is good, not being vindictive. He goes on to say, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men even if they've treated you wrongly. Beloved, he says in verse 19, do not avenge yourselves. And this again, he brings up this um, question of 
related to, to vengeance. Now, in the Old Testament, which is where we get the quote in verse 19, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, uh, this, this quote, uh, the idea of vengeance in the Old Testament is, was a word for justice. It's not a personal vindictiveness. It is the idea of seeking justice. That is not the individual's responsibility to seek justice. He's to go through the authorities that God has established. That's, this is the lead into Romans 13. So he says, beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but give, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, get rid of the wrath, the anger, the bitterness. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. In other words, don't return evil for evil, but return good for evil. Don't, and he concludes, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Question. Okay, do I let him get off scot-free? No. There are proper authorities for handling injustice. And so this leads him, remember there weren't chapter divisions, this sets up, his discussion in, in Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There must be order in dealing with injustice in society, and that order comes from the uh, governing authorities. And this is why God has established the government, going back to uh, Genesis chapter 9, this is why God established government is to provide for order and to deal for order in society and to deal with evil. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, and that uh, uh, uses the definite article there, which indicates a specific authority, resists the ordinance of God. You're not just disobeying the government's law. You're disobeying God because God is the one who put that authority in place. Now, I know you're saying, well, what if it's an unjust authority? Paul is writing this early in the reign of Nero when Nero was still a good king. Peter says the same thing in First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses uh, uh, 13 to 17. He's going to say the same thing, but he's writing at the end of Nero's reign when Nero's trying to kill all the Christians. So they're writing the same thing, but under under one's under a good authority, one's under a bad authority, because the principle is not relevant to the nature of the authority. The principle is, in, is part of the authority structure that God has built into the whole uh, universe. And then I'll just go through verse 3. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. This is their, their role. What if they fail? That's another issue. Paul is not talking about every what if. He is laying the groundwork for the foundational role of government here. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. See, his focus is on the individual. You just do the right thing, and you're not going to have to worry about uh, about the government. The focus is on individual response here to government. Now, verse 4 is going to raise some really interesting questions uh, related to individual government. We'll come back and talk about that next time. And then we'll get into some, uh, some important examples. So 
What is the issue here? The issue is understanding, number one, that God established these authorities. It is the office and the position of the authority, not the quality of the individual in that office that is important. Saul was just a scumbag. He's out to assassinate David. He is so spiritually out, out of order and rebellious that, that he's committing evil. He becomes a type of, the, of Satan and a type of the Antichrist. He's, he is a believer, but he is completely out of it. Yet David recognizes he has to show ultimate respect for the office to the point that he can't disrespect Saul in any way because to disrespect the person is to disrespect the office. So these are challenging verses in some ways, especially for Americans and Texans who like to uh, challenge authority at various times, and we need to think about these things. So we'll keep going. There's a lot more to cover, and we'll hit it some more next time. Father, thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that you would help us to uh, understand what the Scripture says and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.